one take one uh, on the podcast is going to get clipped out before I introduce it. That's good. All right, welcome to the Eric Anders Lang Show, everybody. We're al fresco today with none other than John Buscemi. Al fresco, what is what does that mean to you, John? Well, al fresco, uh, it sounds like you're at you know, you're in Beverly Hills on Camden outside getting an aperol spritz, maybe a cacio e pepe from uh, one of the Italian restaurants. It's an Italian phrase, and you you are are you, what are you the most of? Not not uh, not generationally or demographically. What, what what are you the most of? Like you've got a lot of hats. You you've got food in your life from a business perspective. You've got clothing in your life, fashion shoes. You've got golf. You've got um, you know. I'm I'm sure there. Are, I'm, I'm excited to learn what else you have that I don't know about. But what is what is makes up the most of Buscemi? Um, well, I'm a victim of circumstance. I think that's what makes the most of me. Uh, I am a product of my environment more than anyone that I know. I grew up in the suburbs of New York City in Uniondale, about a driver away from the New York uh, Nassau Coliseum. And I grew up in a time in New York in the late 70s, early 80s, where it was like, I think I'm a little older than you, but you probably can relate there was music and art and sports and walls getting broken down in Germany, like all, like all these things happening, you know, and, uh, from an early age, you know, the hip hop skateboard scene in New York was kind of this like underground thing. And that's where those are, that's what I'm most, I think if you cut me open, you know what I mean? You'll see, you'd probably see, uh, the DNA strain is a lot of skateboarding and hip hop. That's like kind of the base of me, you know. Six, seven years old, break dancing and listening to music and writing graffiti with my friends. But on the same side, on the other side, massively into sports as a kid. Played everything, all star teams, pitched no hitter in an all star game when I was in seventh grade. Even, even Roger Clemens didn't do that. Exactly, exactly. Played uh, lacrosse at a high level. You know, even walked on at St. John's in 1992, played lacrosse. Soccer, baseball, football, skateboarding, like everything, all of it, you know. So I'm kind of like this jock too, you know. But I think all of those things, you know, I was always involved and always interested in the fashion aspect of it. You know, I was always like the best looking guy on the baseball diamond or in lacrosse. I had the, you know, everything I did was kind of like meticulous when it came to like looking good, no matter what situation, the best sneakers, you know, whatever jacket was in, in fashion, I was always about it. And, you know, we could talk about this for hours, but a big part of my story is in third and fourth grade, we started customizing clothing. We had a store called Shoppers Village in West Hempstead, Long Island, and they had a, excuse me, <clears throat> they had a custom apparel guy there where you could bring your T-shirts and get, like, stencils or, you know, name of your crew and letters, kind of like that breakdance, kind of like the breakdance crew or the motorcycle club type of vibe. Right, and this is before you could just go on, like, some website and get a shirt with whatever you want on it for 15 bucks in two days. Exactly. This is old school. It was. It was, it was analog to the fullest, and it was... The biggest thing was to be able to outdo your peers from a fashion standpoint growing up in New York in that time. So right. if, if you all were 
shopping at Models or you're all going to Macy's to buy the latest, you know, polo shirt. That wasn't enough. We had to like take that and then like outdo each other. So the only way to do that was customization and like doing things that were a little bit different. You know what I'm saying? So I know <coughs> you and I have been friends for a while. Uh, you're uh, you're currently a member at Wilshire, where that was my home for a long time, and we knew each other a little bit through that and through the community of kind of, I guess, cool golf happenings and, and whatever in Los Angeles. Um, you know, but we're here now. I realized when I said the word alfresco, I didn't explain where we are alfresco. We could be in Italy as far as the people listening know. <laughs> if you're watching the video, this is also a video on YouTube if you want to look at it. Just type in E-A-L Buscemi and you'll find it. But um, the, uh, the current location is Roosevelt Golf Course, municipal nine-hole course right under the uh, shadow of the uh, Griffith Observatory. And you said right before we pressed record that this is where it all began. That's right. This is, all, this is where I played my first, well, this isn't an 18-hole course. This is a nine-hole executive, but this is the first time I played a round of golf. It, it really is, uh, it's a golf course. I mean, if they had another nine holes, it would be a real golf course. But it's a real golf course. It's an executive nine. Um... In high school, we had golf and PE in sophomore year. So I played for one trimester in Kellenberg. We had a seven iron and a putter, and we played on the football field. So <laughs> it was insane. That's awesome. We hit off of mats, and then we putt, like, on this fake. It was insane. But we learned how to play golf. I learned how to swing when I was a sophomore in high school. And then when I moved out here in 2002, I moved into my friend Eric Costin's house. He's a professional skateboarder. Um... But he really wants to be a pro golfer. You know that, Eric. Wow. That's his dream, you know? So I moved out here, and that's a really long story, but the, as the story goes, I moved out here to get a job because I, I was working on Wall Street. How old are you? I was 24 at the time. You were working on Wall Street? Yeah, I worked on Wall Street for five and a half years. Like wearing a college. suit? Yeah, suit. Trading? Yeah, uh, stockbroker, investment banker. This is pre-cell phone. This is pre... No, no. I had a cell phone in 1994, the, the Motorola gray flip phone. The massive one. Yeah. The one that's the size of like two sleeves of balls. But in 1990... <laughs> exactly. Bougemi, where did you put that? In your pocket? Did you, did you, were you early on the man purse? I was early on the... Uh, no, I was early on the leather backpack. Ooh. That was a thing. <laughs> like a little leather backpack from like... I don't know who sold it, whatever. It, was, it, was, it wasn't great. How I had much, a black leather backpack. How much were your shoes at this point in time in your life? Well, How much did they cost? Well, I made a couple of bucks my second year as a stockbroker, and I think I had a pair of Alden, which were about 500 bucks at the time, okay. which were a very respectable English, like, Savile Row type of suit, suit shoe. You know did, what I mean? Did other Wall Street cats uh, inquire about the shoe? Well, the thing is, a lot of the Wall Street cats were kind of like those Ginzo, kind of like, hey, you know, uh, <laughs> they, you know they were wearing, like, uh, Alfani from, right, right, right. from Macy's, which was like the fake Armani. Right. And they had a pair of like Aldo's on. <laughs> what square, I've learned is, toe. yeah, what I've learned is money can't buy you taste, you know? Boom. You know? We're going to get there in a minute. <laughs> Golf needs your help. <laughs> exactly. It does. It really does. So, uh, yeah, I did that. And then I moved out here and uh, these fucking skateboarders were golfing every day. At Roosevelt? Golfing, well everywhere but this was the this was like the go to breakfast at the pancake place on sunset what the, the fuck griddle? was it called the griddle hell yeah jump in the car and come here and i was like all right i'll golf i'll fucking do it wait and it, up until this point you had had obviously um you know you seem like the guy that doesn't really um tether to one tribe 
No. Right? You, you're kind of like the, like you said, a product of circumstance. So so your tribe is merely who you're around. You're great at connecting with people. So I'm imagining that at this point in your life, you have friends with all different types of people. Absolutely. So there was three tribes in New York, but they were all kind of like. It's all good. They were all kind of interconnected through the New York City nightlife. Right. So you had us skateboarder kind of art skateboard people, and then you had the music industry. So we had friends that worked at labels, that worked at the nightclub, that were DJs, that were actual musicians or whatever. And then you just had like socialite crowd that we know about in LA and just people that were always out. Right. So those people are always like, I feel like they're making the world go around. You know? Right. Usually in any city, it's like the guy that works at the nightclub, he can like make anything happen. Right, you know? right, so right. we were, those are like the Malvin, Mike Malvin, Steve Malvin types that were like, had the magazine, the agency, nightlife stuff. Yeah, just connected. Just connected people. And those are always nocturnal people, right? Right. In a big way. And, and then moving out to L.A., I realized that's where most of things were happening as well. Right. So Eric had, like, a brand-new set of clubs, and he had these, like, clubs that he had won or someone gave them to him, and they were, like, a set of pings with graphite shafts with, like, a terrible putter and, like wedges from like you know the roger dunn roger dunn like bin you know right so i came out here one day and they were like wow i mean you can swing the club i said yeah i swung the club for one semester in in high school i mean i guess i I can hit a baseball i can hit this thing and i just was like immediately hooked that first day being here because going to a driving range or going to like hit off a mat on a football field is not the same as like we saw deer out here it was like there was like some cute girls playing it was like a different experience here you know Coyotes. so it kind of like got me yeah this um, is one of the more natural courses and we're gonna go play and you know whatever yeah. but this is one of the more natural courses in like the world absolutely right when you really bake it out it's like you know you don't really see you see more mountains and sky and you know nature than you do at a lot of like high-end courses and one of the best views in the city yeah. from uh six or yeah six the downhill the the, the, the short par four downhill right yeah. you get that beautiful view and then the observatory on seven and eight yeah just imagine playing like this is the first place i play golf and how beautiful it, it was beautiful man uh, it stuck with it still sticks with me and i was like pumped to come here today man thank you it's interesting that you know like just real briefly you know a a big theme for me is like are you new to golf right like like let's make sure that those of us that have been around the game long enough are you know conscious of what it means to potentially commit your life to the game whether financially or time or you know socially right like there's that sort of fragile moment in the beginning and it sounds like you had some Eskimos some shepherds bringing you in but, you know, it's interesting because Roosevelt really is that place for a lot of people who aren't ready to play 18, um, you know, who don't have the time or whatever. And, and you're probably more likely to see here those memories of people like you and me who say, you know, this is the first place I played golf. Yeah, absolutely. You know? and, and, you know, and then when you go back and you, and you then have been there for years or decades and you see, like, wow, like this place still has that quality to it and taking care of that and just remembering that. Is that something that, you know, like... Does that come across for you or anything like that? Do you think about stuff like that? Well, I do. And also, I think on the surface here, it looks like this 
kind of just nine hole executive in like a night. But again, we're in like the middle of Hollywood right next to Griffith's Observatory. I mean, Humphrey Bogart probably played here or something. I don't know the story. But (laughs) again, I think as everything I go through in life is always these connections. It's like I didn't play the nine hole executive for the first time in like Albuquerque, New Mexico. You know what I mean? Right. It's something about like this place that has the allure to it. And I think that's what's sticking with me, too. There's a story behind this place. Yeah. And also, it's the first time I played nine. And I played it with, like, a couple of really great friends that I was in a weird place in my life, too. I was coming out here to find a job. I was, like, basically broke, didn't know what I was doing in my life. So there's a lot of a lot of that's connected to this place. You what's, your, uh, what's your best round here? Do you remember? I shot par here. I, th- I think Whoa. I told you. Yeah. Did I tell you that? No. Oh, yeah. That's hard, dude. Yeah. So if you want to shoot par here, you have to play a hero round, which I did. I had three birdies, one double, one bogey, and the rest pars. I can run you through it if you want me to. It's okay. Yeah. I think it might, maybe people listening aren't going to give too much of a they, – yeah. they won't visualize it. Yeah. I want to hear it, though, off camera. Yeah, off camera, yeah. I the mean, best I have is one over, and yeah. that's like – that's but, steady. But how many times have you played here? Oh, 100. Okay, yeah, I've played more. I've probably played – 200 times here you know you i played here a stickers. lot dude i mean i've only been in wilshire a year man right you know so um, i was hacking around before that you know what i'm saying so playing anywhere y- you mentioned a little bit about how skateboarding and golf have a lot in common i'm curious to know what you what your thoughts are on that what do you mean i think i think as a skateboarder or a skateboarder is like an alcoholic you're always an alcoholic you know what i mean boom yeah it's stuck with you it's just it'll always stick with you i'm always like you know, like skating, my fingers on things. Being a skateboarder is in, in you for life. And I think part of that is it's so tribal. I feel like golf is massively tribal. Oh, yeah. You know, I was telling you that one of the things that sucks is you're, if you, you always notice your tribe at the TSA line has a Titleist hat on, you're like... It is a familiar hey, sight. Uh, <laughs> Even if I don't have a Titleist club. Exactly. But, you know, it's, but, it's true. But, but I, don't, I can't tell you how many times I've been in another country or walking down the street in New York City or wherever or in traffic, and you see, well, well let's start in the 80s. In 1989, my brother went to the art, art school in Pittsburgh, and I was skateboarding. I brought my skateboard. You could tell from 40 miles away that I was a skateboarder with the hat, the hair, the board. The, the, and in the 80s, you see another skateboarder down the street, you're like... Not only are you best friends immediately, your family. Like, that's how it feels, you know? And I think golf, I love that about golf. Like, I just had the member guest at Wilshire, played with eight dudes that in a million fucking years I would never probably talk to. Just because they golf, I had a great time with them. We have a lot, you know, it's, it's just the... Skateboarding is so fucking hard. It really is. And so is golf. And dangerous. Golf isn't that dangerous, other than <laughs> if you're on nine at Wilshire and some 80-year-old guy hits a drive through the bush when you're on six. It's pretty dangerous. <laughs> Can you talk a little but, bit about, like, you... But I think it's, yeah. The similarities are, it's so hard. Skateboarding can be done anywhere and in different, in different terrain. Golf is the same way. Every shot is different. Every time you have a skateboard under your feet going down a stair everything it's so different every time you're doing those two sports like in basketball there's a rim here's your boy you pass it baseball pitch yeah you know what i mean it's like football it's like those are all kind of like so structured i think golf 
and skateboarding aren't, and they have a lot in common. It's so, and and the challenge, you know, it's very challenging, you know, compared to. And also, I, when can you you can't get twenty guys to go play football, right now. No. But you can grab your skateboard and go skate and go grab a club and play. You know, it's like very good like that. It's interesting because you said well, I, I'm harping on this phrase, but a product of your environment. I, that's kind of both golf and skateboarding have that. It's it merely you can't really uh, play golf just in an empty field. I mean, you, you kind of can, but I mean, the game itself is played on a course and the course is specifically suited to travel. And I've seen skateboarders in every country I've been in and, you know, they are just adapting and finding whatever they have and creatively working within that environment, which is interesting. It seems like that's a creative thing for you. Absolutely. And also as a 45 year old man playing golf, you have the tribe if you're a 45-year-old ex-football player, you're not going to, like, talk to another football player, like, ever, really. You know what I mean? And I also love skateboard. I mean, you see there's a commercial out right now with, like, 75 or 76-year-old guys still, like, skating ramps and stuff. Yeah. Like, there's not too many sports you can play at the same level for so long. Right. You know, skateboarding, you know... Ron Allen and Lance Mountain that are 55 or 60 years old, 60 years old, they're still skating at the same level that they were at 18. Right. It's pretty wild, you know. Um, you've, you've undergone a transition that most golfers don't go through, which is, am I right, that you started off as a muni golfer, public course? Absolutely. Um, and then you transitioned into maybe more so playing private courses? That's right. And, and not just private, but I mean exclusive courses. You've had a lot of success. We'll get into your business in the second half of the podcast after the break. But, you know, based around your, um, you know, great decisions in business and in life, you've had a lot of success, which has afforded you the ability to go play at, like, beautiful golf courses, exclusive golf courses, courses where it's on some level money couldn't even get you there. Can you talk a little bit about, and, and even your private club membership, right? I mean, because for me, that was a massive transition that mm -hmm. took me a long time to even have the blocks land and for me to figure out even where I was and what it meant and what I was doing and what I could do. And, um, you know, golf struggles with kind of this high and low, you know, like I get a lot of, you know, feedback on Instagram when I, when I'm at a private course, people say, Oh, it's, it's, that can't be a hidden gem because it's private. And I don't agree. Um, but I'm also afforded the unique luxury of, I don't even understand at this point in my golf career, strangely, there is no private course. It's a very strange feeling. I mean, there's a course where I might need to call someone, but more or less could play anywhere. Can you talk a little... It's a weird feeling if you're listening and you think I'm a douchebag. Like, it's a strange experience that I didn't plan for, didn't expect, and didn't really want. No, but it's inspirational to people listening, you know what I mean? I mean, I hopefully. hope so. I hope so. But can you talk about what that's been like for you, is making that transition into this sort of elite world of, of courses, and you being you, you're, you're an everyman. Right, you're you're not you're not better than anybody, and that's yeah. what I really love about you. Can that's you right. can you talk about how that's been and what you've observed and learned? Well, I feel like I still have an appreciation for the municipal golf and 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 playing really great courses, whether they're private or public. You know, uh, Pebble Beach is a public course, right? You can go play; anyone can go play it. Maybe you're priced out and you can't go play it, but I think in LA, and unfortunately. Uh, a lot of people may, maybe won't have access to these private courses or whatever. I feel like the reason I transitioned to a private course was more because of, uh, you know, uh, my lifestyle, right? I can't be, you know, 
I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. Can we cut? Can we cut this out? I need to start over. <laughs> no, you can start over. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, I feel like as a person, I'm always trying to outdo my peers. That's part of it. Always. Interesting. That's one. In everything I do, when it came to my business as uh, designing shoes, I'm trying to do it better than my friends that design shoes and apparel. When I was a kid skateboarding, I want to do the trick better than you. You know. When I was playing baseball or lacrosse, I wanted to be better. With the, it's just kind of like that out, you know, sports sportsmanship, out, trying to outdo. Competition. Competi- I, I'm always in competition, but more importantly with myself. And I felt like being at Wilshire and having a private club membership was like just part of the part of like what I wanted to do, just for selfish reasons. Right. Hopefully that doesn't sound too douchey, but that's a, that's a fucking fact. <laughs> like, that's the facts. You know what I mean? That's one. And also... You know, sometimes, you know, playing a six-hour round at Wilson and Harding is a little difficult on, well, on a Friday complaint. afternoon. You know that's what I mean? It's like complaint. it's really. I mean, I have I have a few businesses I have to attend to, and I feel like it's almost helping me to be able to be a part of something that like I can like do on my own. Right. I can plan my. I can play thirteen holes. I can play three holes. I can go to the range. You know, it's worth every penny because my time now, where I'm at in my life, is so valuable. Again, not to sound douchey, but every minute is like, right, pretty much. What about the like the culture, right? Because we see the culture changing, right? And you know, like we, um, you know, we have friends at all these courses, and we were talking a little bit about how fashion ties into the culture, and how that doesn't really matter what kind of course you're on, as far as the designation or the right. entrance fee or the tee times, or the the you know the greens fee, but like. Just the just the culture of golf changing a little bit. You and I talked a little bit about like our friend Daniel Libman, who may or may not be listening. I don't know if he's a listener. Shout out to Dan Libman. Shout out to Libman. But like, <laughs> you know, like we have Libman and I met at a public course on the driving range, and then years later we were Rusty both at Wilshire, uh, Angeles, Angeles, and um, you know we were just grinding out there. Just had no home base, and right. and that's kind of in a lot of ways that's 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 who I kind of try to speak to in a lot of ways because I know what that feeling is when you're like out there. And you don't feel like there's like a home base, and you're like, I'll play wherever I got. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. And but you know, as golfers, we kind of need that home base, I think. But as far as the culture changing in in uh, I guess all throughout golf, and and how fashion relies on that, can you talk a little bit about that, and then we'll take a quick break and circle back. Absolutely. You know, like I said before, everything I did in my life, and I think I'm maybe I'm like the beginning of this, right? When you know, like the 80s babies we'll call it you know I feel like style whether it was Michael Jordan or whoever it was that was kind of took style into sports whatever that that point that that pin is in time that you know guys like Daniel or guys that are 32, 34 years old now, style was always in their life because of their mothers or whatever was a culture thing. You know, a guy that's 55 or 60 years old that's at a private club, his mother and his parents probably didn't care. And, like, style didn't matter when it came to sports. And, and golf is a sport, you know, I feel like it's a, it's a point in time now where guys that have the buying power and guys that are want to look good in golf are dying for something. They're like, you know, you have Millar and you have Grayson and you have, you know, Dunhill. You have some of these higher-end brands that are kind of getting it, you know what I mean? But it's still not like, get, it's not still, hasn't like coagulized yet, you know what I'm saying? 
And I feel like, you know, there's also this kind of street fashion thing that's happening that's trying to find its way into golf because that's a trend thing. So now you have like this old school look, this street kind of urban, like fast, trendy thing. You know, Brooks Kepka wearing off-white Nikes on the course. You know, you know, there's these, there's these, these wor- worlds are colliding. I feel like now there needs to be a change because you have this next tier, this next generation of golfers that are just kind of lost when it comes to the way they look. You know, and you can see it through the pros. You know, you know, you see little hopes of glimmers of life out there, but you still see a bunch of gym teachers out there, kind of. You know. <laughs> And it's, it's difficult. It's difficult for me to kind of put into words, but I feel like as we move forward, I'm going to try and help that. You know what I mean? That's, that's my, one of my missions. You, uh, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, the old and the new. And, and when I see you dressed for golf, I see that you, I feel like you try to pull those two together, right? That's right. I, I'll see you with something new that looks old or something old that looks new or something old paired with something brand new and it's and it's refreshing i mean you have amazing style thank you is that something that you like does it take much thought at this point in your life i mean was was transitioning into okay i need a golf wardrobe i need a golf closet has that been challenging or what have you stuck to actually you know when it came to it was actually i'm excited about it now because that's really how i inside wanted to look always a little bit dressed up but like i could go to dinner i could go to a movie, I could go play golf, I can, you know, I can go pick up my son from school, you know what I mean, I wanted that transitional, like, outfit throughout the day, and now, if you see, if I'm going to play golf with a few buddies, they're like, okay, you're, are you going to change? I'm like, no, I'm just leaving, I'm going to go and do what I got to do, you know what I mean, and they're like, okay. So you wear the golf outfit. So some buddies I have are like, they have their golf stuff, and then they like, they have to go change and put their other weird clothes on. You know what I mean? Me, I just want to... I think there there shouldn't be any change. I don't think Dean Martin was like, I'm going to go put my golf shit on. You know what I mean? And, you know, he was just in Palm Springs and was like, yeah, let's go play golf. That's what it looked like back then. I feel right. like now it's like, I have to put on my stretch pants. I have to put on my wicking polo shirt. Like, I don't think so. I don't think you have to. I think you can combine those things together. And that's what the newer brands are doing, and that's why I want to help that on the footwear side, and and hopefully eventually on the apparel side. You know. All right. Well, we're gonna get into footwear after this chopper goes by, and after a quick commercial, stand by, everybody. Folks, you've heard me talk about it, and I'm not talking about. Never mind. I'm talking about Precision Pro. You've heard me talk about them. I got a chance to meet these guys. I went out to Cincinnati, spent the, I spent four years with them in one week. It was incredible. Anyway, uh, what's the main thing that golfers have in their bag that they're going to use most during a round? I think you know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a putter. I'm not talking about your favorite iron. I'm not talking about your right arm to flag the beverage cart. I'm talking about your rangefinder. All golfers need a rangefinder that they can trust to know the precise distance in their target for nearly every shot, whether you're on the tee box or in the fairway. That's true. I've, I'm, honestly, I've thought about using it for putting just so I can be super accurate because putting is obviously lagging a little bit. Getting a phone call, folks. Um, Anyway, I carry the NX9 HD Rangefinder by Precision Pro Golf. It's easy to use, incredibly fast, and most importantly, it gives me the exact yardage to my target so I can choose the right club and swing with confidence. 
I actually love pulling it out. People are like, what is that? I'm like, it's Precision Pro. Get down with the green and blue, my guy. Green and gray, I mean. Um, not to mention, Precision Pro offers free battery replacement services for the life of your rangefinder. We all know how annoying it is to run out of batteries, but you get an extra one when you get it, and then you get rangefinder batteries throughout the, like I said, life of your rangefinder. So you're not only getting a rangefinder, you're signing up for a lifetime service. So really, it just depends on how long you live. And at that point, that's where the podcast sort of, that's where it just drops off, and it's up to you at that point. Live healthy, obviously. Play, don't play golf and lightning. Uh, don't don't shoot adventures in golf because that that we've talked about that with my insurance company and it does decrease my lifespan. But you know it increases the benefits and we all have fun. We've all signed up. Me and the crew have all signed. Uh, it's like an NDA for your life. Good news: the NX9 HD rangefinder is on sale for forty dollars off. Even better, listeners of the podcast can receive an extra ten dollars off by using the coupon code Eric E R I K at checkout. Go to PrecisionProGolf.com and use the coupon code ERIC at checkout for $50 off the NX9 HD Rangefinder today. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. All right, got a very, very special read from you. One read that fits into three stripes because you know how much I love the three stripes and I'm very excited to share something with you. Who knows what that'll be? Some secrets, maybe? Some secrets in the dirt? No. Adidas took their knit game to a whole new level. And honestly, I've actually, I wore these just the other day, and I was pretty comfortable and pretty tethered to the ground. Anyway, um, have you seen the new Tor 360 XT Prime Knit that was just released? Um, it's the first waterproof knit that they've ever had. So what you get there is a lot of flexibility around your little old feet, or big old feet, depending on what size your foot is, obviously. Although your foot may be big in stature, but not so much in, you know, you can have a big foot, but still have a small size. You know what I mean? Anyway, they come with a one-year waterproof warranty and three fresh new colorways so you can stand out on the course. It's important to stand out. Sometimes if your golf game, no, anyway, uh, it's built on the XT Traction sole, so you get amazing grip, but it's still lightweight and comfortable. That is true. Anyway, head over to adidas.com slash US slash golf to snag a pair. And follow Adidas Golf on Instagram and Twitter to stay updated on all of their newest releases. Until then, see you out there looking fresh. Hey, Sklar Brothers here, Randy and Jason. And we have a couple of podcasts. If you, you know them or you don't know them, check them out. We do View from the Cheap Seats, which is sports and comedy. And we have a podcast called Dumb People Town where we break down stupid behavior done by stupid people in this stupid world of ours. It is hilarious. Check them both out. And now, check out this podcast. All right, and we're back. Um, all right, so what, what we wanted to talk about here is, well, first let's talk about your history with shoes. You, you, uh, your influence on the global world of shoes is large. Um, what, what do you, when people talk to you about shoes, where do you take that conversation? What do you say? Well, you know, shoes is a big part of the narrative, man. My whole, almost my whole reason for being here is shoes period end of story and it started at an early age um i bought my first pair of shoes in third grade with money from shoveling snow and in third grade i was in 1983 i had like the best pair of shoes i wore in the school there were uh nike bruins with fat laces and you know and then i shoveled more snow or raked more leaves or asked my grandmother for money like i was like didn't care about anything else but sneakers. So that started at an early age. And then I made 
a lot of money early in my life, in my early 20s, being a broker, and I bought more shoes and more shoes. And people talk about sneaker heads and sneaker collections and all that shit now, but I had a 200 or 250-piece sneaker collection, like, before I was 22. You know what I mean? Like, it was weird. I was just like a weird guy with a bunch of sneakers. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, um, and that... When the market crashed and I left Wall Street and I, had, I didn't know what the fuck I was going to do, and the first person who told me, you know, why don't you do something you love, you never work a day in your life. You hear that all the time now, like, on Instagram, but when you hear that for the first time, you, it, like, took me, like, a few weeks to, like, for that to even sink in. So to make a long story short, I parlayed, like, my knowledge of sneakers and my collection into, I mean, basically lying my way into a job as a designer kind of like trend forecaster guy at DC shoes back in the days, you know, in, in 2002. So with that, I, I had no fucking clue what I was doing at DC other than the fact that I knew they weren't doing what was right by the sneaker community. And they wanted to like be a sneaker brand, not just a skate brand. So I got lucky. I, I worked on a few projects that made a lot of money for D.C. I got my Ph.D. in, in shoemaking. And I left, and, you know, a few years later, I started my own brand. You know, so that was like the, I mean, everything that I've known for, I'm sure on my gravestone will be something about shoes. So now all I care about really, other than my family and having a couple bucks in the bank, is golf. So what else am I going to do? I'm going to make golf shoes, you know. So here I am. I mean, I'm a year into development. You, but let's dig into greats, though. So yeah. you, uh, what, what made greats so special? What made greats so successful? Well, I think when Ryan and I came up with the idea to start greats, greats was supposed to be kind of like a camper um, uh, equivalent. Let's make shoes and sell them in one store, or one store in L.A. and one store in New York. And then Ryan was like, well, why don't we just do it on, online? But in 2012, I mean, it's funny, it's only 2019, but seven years ago, e-commerce isn't what it was now. It was still kind of like, I mean, it was working, but it wasn't as powerful as it was now. It was like, I don't know, we're just going to have a website and sell shoes on it? I don't know, that sounds fucking crazy. But I think it was right when Warby Parker started and right when a few of the big direct-to-consumer brands started, it just was like perfect timing, you know what I mean? It just, from the minute we launched, it kind of just got the steamroll and then it was just a, a you know, a, a snowball running downhill. And then with all the, the dawn of the big, you know, direct-to-consumer brands, we were kind of in that conversation, you know, immediately. So I think it was just, again, part of my life. Good timing, good taste, and hard work. Like, that, you know, that's luck, right? That is a good recipe for success right there. Um, it's so interesting hearing your story because it does seem like you just kind of did a a back dive into it all and and it's so funny to see here now with you know like just just such an incredibly happy and successful life and it's like huh like you could it could have gone a lot of different ways absolutely but also i'm leaving out all the failure and like all the depression and all the hard <laughs> and like the hard times right because after i left dc to and i decided to go do this i had a couple of odd jobs i worked for garrett light's dad uh, larry light at oliver peoples and i you know was a brand manager there and you know, I, I consulted and designed shoes for K-Swiss and did some things for Adidas and worked on some things for Nike, just like on the side. But at the, at the same time, it's like I have a struggling business. 
you know, I have a one-year-old son now. I had nothing to lose. It was like we we raised, you know, we raised a couple bucks and we started greats and immediately it got it caught traction. So I think also I you forget and I'm very lucky that I had this like network around me, this support system, you know. And it goes back to what I told you back in New York City like the nightclub guy, you know. I was always like the guy that always wanted to have all my dots connected and I'm always like I got a guy. I'm like the guy that's got a guy. So like when I start a brand, it's like I'm, I got people. Like, like my friend Kevin Ma started Hype Beast, and my boy David, and 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 uh, and these guys started High Snobiety, and all the blogs and the press. And my friend owns a press company. Like we, I always knew that these people would like, and people like me. I like them. And if you're gonna start a brand, you need press. That's really that's it, man. You know you know you know that's the game now. Yeah. So I have a lot of good friends. Thank you, friends. So you're so you're coming out now. The next fold is golf shoe. That's uh, I mean, the the general shoe market is a little bit more wide open. I would say you probably had a little bit, you know, more room in your lane probably to just open and grow and mm-hmm. and hit some traction and hit some hit a stride there. Mm-hmm. Golf is obviously a niche, and a lot of times I feel like I'm in a niche within a niche. Um, do you at some point like? How do you, where, where are you at now? Like, do you care about that? Or are you just like, I'm making a shoe. And it, at what point is it like the shoe and then transcends into yeah. the sale or, or right. whatever? So every time I've done something in my career, especially when I've started a brand, I have a twist. Unfortunately, I can't talk about this twist on this microphone today. I could talk to you off microphone and you, everyone will know it when I come back in six months, hopefully. But I know how to make shoes very well. That's a fact. I love that. I was at Augusta during the Masters, and Sean Foley called me Boosh from the from the from the driving range. You know what I mean? Like I, Claude Harmon and I are friends, and I know you. And uh, me and Ricky Fowler text each other about like what he's wearing to his wedding. So I'm like, I'm in the golf world now. Like I'm, I'm somehow I'm in it. Like. And because it's a niche and it's just like skateboarding, it's very kind of like this small thing. But through, I got to give it, I got to shout out Steve Malbin for like bringing me, he bringing me into the light three years ago. But now I know I can make shoes. I have friends and allies in this world. Now I have to bring you the twist and the twist is, I can't talk about it, but just wait for it. Well, it's without coming. without revealing the twist, which I'm very excited to have it be revealed to me once we turn the mic off. Right. What uh, has there been? Any, have you learned anything yet? Have you have you had any challenges so far with making a golf shoe? Well, I've learned what I've learned because it's people, a challenging move, right? What I've learned is in any industry, whether it's my hot sauce brand, the deli, you know, StockX, which I'm an investor in, uh, the whiskey brand that me and a few friends started. If you don't have something that people are gonna think that's better or different than what they already have then don't do it at all so i can make shoes very well i know people in the golf industry i just need to have the twist i think golf shoes believe it or not after researching them for a year very very strenuously are not much different than a regular shoe i've already made so that's a good thing we got to turn the mics out and talk more about this we're going to go play golf what what's your what's your golf mindset what do, you, what do you get on the golf course? Golf 
what I get on the golf course about twice or three times around is a feeling of greatness that you can't get anywhere else. Whether it's the first time you had sex or the first time you did a drug or the first time you did anything that made you feel really good, you can get that at least once around. And that's why I'm out here today. <laughs> or, or you want something specific? No, no, I like that. That or was a great answer. Just puring a two iron... Puring my my uh, Callaway 18 degree, the weapon, which I call it. The that's weapon. Just, that's just a fuck. You, Murder. You'll hear it on the first tee here. I'm gonna hit it onto the fringe. What? Uh, <laughs> when you're when? What do you think? Like the point of golf is. I mean, because we we literally spend hours, days, weeks, months, years of our lives, sort of chasing this game and understanding it and playing it and enjoying the, it. The point of golf for me is. It's something that I can do exactly like the best guy in the world. I can beat Tiger on the seventh hole at Wilshire any day of the week. And that's a fact. Straight up, I can beat him on a 135-yard par three. Right? Right. I can't beat Deion Sanders or... That's a bad reference. Or fucking... Old school. Right. Barry <laughs> I, Bonds. Yeah. I can't, I can't beat... I can't hit a home run like Barry Bonds. I'll, I'll probably never be able to do it. But I think for me, I inside I'm very competitive and I think I'm the best in the world at what I do in my daily life. I think golf affords that luxury to anyone who has the minds the mind state to think that way. You know, you can do the hot, you could be better than the best person on the planet at any given time, any day, any given day. What do you hate about golf? In life, everything, general. Hmm. What do I hate? I don't hate many things, uh, but I hate people with bad attitudes more than anything. I think there's a lot of people with bad attitudes in this world. Well, for, maybe for right reasons, but in my life, I like to have PVO, you know, the positive vibes only. Uh, I really hate people that um, that come from a place of... Uh, the bad energy kills me. That's the thing I hate the most in this world. The bad energy. What are you afraid of? Uh, the the thing that I'm afraid of the most is my my son bring, bringing my son up. That's always like the the only thing I'm really scared about every day is like looking at my kid and saying, "Am I doing the right thing here?" You know what I mean? Like being a good parent. That's the, that's the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. Be, and it's and it I don't think it's ever going to stop. Having a kid is. You always hear, I mean, my dad always, always used to say, you're going to see when you have kids. And I know, I know that feeling really <laughs> well, man. I know that feeling really well. How do you want to die? Well, well, now, it's funny. I mean, I would say this in any podcast. It's probably be either in, in a bed with a beautiful woman or on the golf course somewhere. <laughs> somewhere. Sounds very James Bond of you. Um, what do you like to do on the golf course? You like to you like to gamble. You like to, you're, you're a better, right? You like yeah. to gamble. I like to gamble within reason. Like, you know, we have a couple guys at Wilshire that you've played with recently that they go big. Yeah, which I'm. Look, I have a couple of bucks, but I don't feel comfortable betting a ton of money. What's on your the golf max course. wager you like to go for? You know. Once things get up to a hundred dollars a hole, I think that's where I'll I'll, I'll stop. You that's know? a lot. It's a pretty much a lot. I, but I like to start out if someone wants to do you know 
ten dollars a hole, you know. So that's so auto presses to... after two down, you know, that type of thing. It gets a little, it gets, it gets hairy, man. If right. you're not playing well, let's do it. I'm not as the, as people watching might know. I'm not the best. I don't perform too well under pressure on the golf course, but we should try it. Yeah, let's do a small wager. Okay, so ten a hole. Ten a hole. I can most I can lose is well ninety, but then I guess we could press. Yeah, but I don't have to lose every hole. You won't what, lose every hole. What's your hand? You, we play handicaps. Yeah, we'll play handicaps. You're what? Uh, I'm a twelve. My index is twelve, so maybe you'll give me. Uh, and I'm a five. Yeah. Four seven, so that means seven. So that would you would get three or four strokes. Okay. Right. That sounds right. Because it's half. Because it's nine. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you shot even here, my best is one over. I mean, you got maybe course knowledge, confidence. That's why you shot an eighty-four at Proghorn because you're a four. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? No, because you had you guys had a 84, and I was like... Oh, so bad. I thought you were like a 6 or an 8 or something. We're not. We weren't like... Hand- four, I, I didn't have the right handicap to play in the event. You, no. Uh, yeah. Buscemi's talking about the Jones Weekender where oh, yeah. we just worked. Shout out to Jones. Jones is great. You, the slides you did with Jones are great. Those nice... Uh, those are leather. Yeah, it's a leather slide. It's uh, more for, you know, getting the newspaper on the, on the uh, driveway or... You know, shuffling around the house. They're clean. Yeah, they're good. We do a lot. I love working with Jones. Those guys, th- those guys, you know, and, and really as we kind of, let's dive back into the whole, like, you know, your endeavor, which is going to be your name, right? It's going to just be called Buscemi? Yeah, it's going to be called Buscemi Club Special. Sick. You know, this is like, this is sort of the dawn, right, of, of smaller companies coming in, making a difference, making an impact, offering choice and creative uh, expression to the golfing community that otherwise was relegated to a titleist hat. That's right. That's right. Absolutely That's important. Right. It is. It is. What What is, you know, when you look at, um, uh, to dive back into that Proust questionnaire thing, you know, um, what do you love? What do I love? I mean, I love my family. I, I love that I have the opportunity to be able to now, um, you know, after grinding it out for so many years, I have the opportunity to pick whatever lane I want to be in before, you know, I, I had to work hard to get to this position, but right. you know, and I tell this to, you know, entrepreneurs that come up to me or people that come up to me, like, how did you get here? You know, I got here because I worked my fucking ass off for other people for a long time and took my lashes. You know what I mean? I love that. I did that because I, you know, I have friends, you know, hopefully they're not listening to this, you know, but I have friends that are still like doing the same thing in my town that had the opportunities of a lifetime that just kind of like wasted it and I didn't, you know. And I think I love I love that I have an opportunity to do exactly what I want to do because I worked hard to get it, you know. I love that, you know. So, right. I do. Favorite type of food. Fa- favorite dish. Favorite dish. Favorite dish. Cuz it's Italian is your favorite type of food. Italian's my favorite food, but I've, I'm you know what? That that's 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 slowly changing, man. Whoa. It's slowly changing. It's Whoa. Slowly changing. Slowly changing. Moving to what? Well, I mean, I've, I feel like I'm changing a little bit to more Asian, the the Asian palate. Interesting. You know what I'm saying? I've been eating a lot more, and especially like Malay. I've I've been eating at this Malaysian restaurant called Sticky Rice downtown. It's in the Grand Central Market. It's one of the best meals you can ever have. But, okay. So my favorite dish right now is the, uh, is the boil is the uh, uh, chicken and rice from uh, Sticky Rice downtown. I'll check it out. Check it. It's amazing. Barbe- it's chicken marinated barbecued with this like uh, relish on the side with with sticky rice. Do you, have you ever had sticky rice? Yeah, it comes yeah. in a bag. 
Yeah. Oh, kind of sweet. It's a little sweet with the with the coconut milk on it, yeah. and then the you have the the charred marinated chicken on top. My favorite is good. the is the Thai dessert, the melon and the rice. Oh, the melon the, and the, the rice. The yeah. uh, mango. Mango. Mango sticky, sticky rice. rice. I mean, come on, dude. I like it's pretty good. I fall asleep immediately because there's a lot of sugar. But but number one is pizza, I think, actually. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm still there. Do you have a pizza oven at the house? I do have a pizza oven in the house. I, I have, a, have a wood a wood burning uh, pizza oven, 48-inch pizza oven in the back of my house, all wood burning. You have to use citrus woods, orange. You have to use lemon wood. It, it has no smoke, so the, your pizza doesn't get smoky. So remember that, listeners. <laughs> citrus wood. Um, dude, let's go play some golf. Let's do it. Thank you for being a guest on the show. I really appreciate it. Bushami, you're on Instagram. It's just, uh, it's J-O-N Bushami, right? B-U- That's right. B-U-S-C-E-M-I. Yeah. And, um, check out greats. Check out the shoe coming out. Yeah. Check out, uh, Uncle Paulie's. Check out Uncle Paulie's. Check it out. I'm Beverly. Best sandwich shop. Uh, what's the, what's the go-to there? Um, Italian combo or the Paulie, which is a turkey fresh made mozzarella and uh, roasted pepper what's 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 gonna be the next thing what's after the golf show i don't know man we're just gonna stay here for now we're gonna we're gonna focus it's gonna be hard work you know the golf world you know yeah. there's three four thousand stores i gotta go visit you know so it's hard to well i wish you the best of luck with that i Thanks, can't wait man. to see the product and uh i don't know let's go play some golf let's go lose some money hopefully we <laughs> lose the it. same exact amount exactly exactly <laughs> you'll i'll win on the aloha <laughs> Thanks, man. Later, man.